to Luke 10:38. Luke 10:38. And Mandy's my wife, so for those that don't know, so she'll be speaking this morning. Luke 10:38, and it's a story where Jesus comes to the home of Martha and Mary. Luke 10:38. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself tell her to help me martha martha the lord answered you are worried and upset about many things but only one thing is needed mary has chosen what is better and it will not be taken away from her in these moments why don't we pause together and pray to our god this morning let's pray God, our Father, we come to you today. We come to you this Mother's Day. And we just pause. We slow down. Just in these moments of quietness, God, we want to thank you. We want to thank you for mothers. But we want to thank you for mothers who play such a large role in the nurture and the love and the upbringing of children. God, for mums with little ones today who often uh, find themselves running from activity to activity. For mums who uh, need to work as well outside the home as be mothers as well. And feel the demands of trying to challenge, uh, balance the busyness and the time that they have with kids and in the home as well. God, we thank you for them. We pray, God, that in the midst of these many, many busy days, that they would know many moments of stillness and quietness where they're caught in wonder of you. God, we pray that they would know you deeply even in the midst of these times god this morning for older mums mums who have faced the heartaches and the joys of loving children and and of seeing them grow up to adults who have their own families god we thank you for these mums for their wisdom for the many things that they have given of themselves Lord, we thank you for their maturity. Lord, we give you praise for these mums. Lord, this morning too, we just lift up to your single mums. We pray for mothers too who grieve the loss of loved ones. For mums who face sickness at this time. Mums that are in fear or are anxious this morning. Mums that are hurt in ways that Um, only they really know. 
We lift them up to you, God, this morning. And Lord, we pray for those today who are grieving the loss of their mum, maybe in the last year or in recent years. We, we pray for them. God, we just thank you for how good you are to us. Our Father, for providing mothers. And this morning we pray that our mums would know how much we love them and how much we care for them and how much we are thankful to you for them. So God, speak to us this morning, we pray. Would you uh, speak to us as we hear you speak? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, has anyone else uh, happened to notice that life just seems to keep getting faster? It's not just that the years uh, seem to be flying by more quickly, but most of us seem to be in more and more of a hurry. And uh, apparently we'll even pay people to help us hurry. Uh, a lending organisation in the US became the number one lender of money when they said they'd cut in half the amount of time it takes to find out whether or not you get a loan from them. Nothing to do with interest rates or loan features, just a loan in a hurry. Uh, we want to get fit in a hurry, lose weight in a hurry. Uh, and if you're not looking for fast weight loss, then we just might be looking for fast food. And then, if we're in too much of a hurry to stand in a line for it, you can just do the drive-through thing to enable the eating of food in the car, on the run, just as nature intended. <laughs> and then the next time, if you're in too much of a hurry, even for drive-through, you can just have the kids or the grandkids scrounge around in the cracks between the car seats for <laughs> leftover French fries from last visit to Macca's. Maya Friedman, he says that in our society, we suffer from what he calls hurry sickness and he defines it as a continuous struggle, an unremitting attempt to accomplish or to achieve more and more things or participate in more and more events in less and less time, frequently in the face of opposition, real or imagined from others. And he says this kind of disease is something which can destroy us physically and destroys us spiritually. And my guess is that Probably many of us here and those who live in our kind of society battle with this disease in one form or another. You know, when we moved from Melbourne to Wodonga for the country life, uh, you know, I just thought we were automatically going to start walking more slowly and talking more slowly. And uh, you know what? I just have to let you know that... Um, there's no such thing necessarily as the country lifestyle. Yeah, it can be lived at the same hurried pace of life. Just a bit less travelling in the car perhaps to get to uh, local places. But uh, from my experience, that can just leave a bit more time to fill up with hurrying. Um, if you suffer from hurry sickness, you often find yourself feeling like there are just not enough hours in a day. You relate to that. You just wish you had more time. You feel like you are quite often in a race. And sometimes we might even act like that. If you wrestle with hurry sickness and you're doing your grocery shopping, there might be one of two lines that you can stand in at the checkouts, line A or line B. And so you count how many people and how many trolleys 
and how many items per shopping trolley. And then you do the multiplication in your head and you choose which line you're going to stand in. And then if you've got this hurry sickness thing really bad, then not only do you do that, but when you get in line A, you keep track of who would have been you in line B. <laughs> because if that person is still in, if that person is out the door when you're still standing in line, then the rest of that day is going to be a bad one. You're depressed, you have hurry sickness. You know, if this is you, when you come to an intersection um, and there's a stoplight uh, and there are two lanes and one car in each lane, you kind of think really carefully about which car you're going to uh, get behind. And you find yourself guessing based on the make and the model and the year of the car, which car is going to get away fastest. And for many of us, uh, out of a desperate need to hurry, the car is a favourite place for multitasking, isn't it? Um, hurry sick people can drive, eat, drink coffee, turn the radio from one station to another, talk on your mobile, hands-free of course, um, make gestures, apply makeup all at the same time. You know, I wonder how many of us here suffer from hurry sickness, where we can be a sick bunch of people, can't we, at times? You know, I was reading in a January issue of Time a couple of years ago and it, uh, there was an article on the perils of multitasking. Um, and I think as, you know, as women and as mums especially, we've kind of mastered that quite well, haven't we? But it talked about the toll that all of this uh, disruption and mental channel switching uh, is taking on our ability to think clearly, to work effectively and to function as healthy human beings. Um, one psychiatrist says that the fallout of multitasking mania has been a tenfold rise in the number of patients showing symptoms that resemble those of ADD and they've diagnosed it as, they've called it some, uh, this condition something, they've called it attention deficit trait, ADT. And he explains that ADT takes hold when we get so overloaded with incoming messages and competing tasks that we are unable to prioritise. And the result is not only uh, distractibility and impulsiveness and haste, but also feelings of guilt and of inadequacy. And you know what else, though? There's a, there's a much greater cost to this. Jesus, at one time, he was concerned about this tendency that we have to, to be in a hurry, to be running really fast, so that we're missing out on what's most important and not giving attention to what really matters. On one occasion, Jesus and his disciples came to the village of Bethany and they headed straight for spending some time with Martha and with Mary. And Jesus knew that the cross was only a few days away and he perhaps wanted an opportunity to um, lay down the, the tension of living, of in anticipation of what lay ahead. Perhaps wanted some time for some downtime with some friends. And now Martha, what a woman. She opens her home to this band of 13 hungry men. We might think one hungry man is enough. Uh, wives, mightn't we? But this is 13, perhaps more. What a hostess. This is Martha in all her glory. After all, this is Jesus. And she loved Jesus and because it might be said or assumed that her love language is acts of service, uh, she, I can imagine, thinks I'm going to scrap the ordinary soup and rolls here. I'm going to pull out all of my uh, Donna Hay cookbooks and she decides this is going to be a banquet fit for a messiah. 
the Messiah. So many things to do, so little time. My mind starts to imagine all the, the volume and the variety of the preparations. Maybe it's a mum thing. Um, it definitely is in our house. The lists just start compiling themselves in my head and jumping out onto paper. And so Martha, she sends one service off on a trip to the deli, another to Coles with a shopping list a mile long and the required number of green bags, of course. And it's just to make sure that the table decorations and the serviettes match. And, oh, no, she's forgotten about dessert. What's going to be just right for dessert? How about a lemon tart? So she sends off another servant to catch up to the one who was heading off to Coles who'd forgotten his mobile phone at home in all of the rush to add cream and lemons to the list. And then she wonders, are Jesus and his followers going to be staying overnight? So she starts to organise someone to uh, make up the beds, 13 of them, mind you. Place a towel on the end of each one. And then she remembers the mess that's still there to be cleared away after the neighbour's kids have been at her house for a play earlier in the day. And the bits of Lego and Barbie's wardrobe that are scattered all over the floor and under the couches. And then there's the thought, where's Mary? Has anyone seen Mary? The whole entire household is in an uproar. Busy, uh, getting ready to entertain the most famous teacher of their day, the man most likely to become the next king of Israel. And there's this anger that boils up inside of Mary when she finally catches sight of Mary. Her, uh, in, anger that boils up, boils up inside of Martha as she finally catches sight of Mary, her lazy sibling, sitting at Jesus' feet in the lounge room. While all of this is going on, it's simply too much. She feels this urge to scream with everything still left to do. The least she could have thought was to clean the toilet. But she seems oblivious to all of Martha's gesturing from the hall. So Martha tries clearing her throat. She even resorts to her most effective tool, the evil eye. But nothing has any effect on her sister. Mary has eyes only for Jesus. She's enraptured with every word that Jesus says. And competing with the thought in Martha's mind that this just isn't fair is this nagging sense in the back of her mind that she just might be missing out on something important. But then she throws that thought aside and she thinks, I'm going to speak to Jesus. I'm going to speak to Jesus about Mary. He'll think that she should be helping me and sharing the load. After all, he of all people knows what it's like to carry the weight of the world on his shoulders. And then when everything's done, when the meal's over, the dishwasher's packed, everything's cleared away, everything's settled down, then, then there's time for all the sitting around and hanging out and catching up and having a chat. And so pushed to the limit, Martha does something unprecedented. She interrupts. She's certain that Jesus is going to be on her side. Jesus, don't you care that my sister has abandoned me and left er abandoned me in the kitchen, left everything up to me? Tell her to help me. But with all of Martha's hustling and bustling, her huffing and puffing, it doesn't gain her any applause or any credit from Jesus. In fact, he gently rebukes her. And he says, Martha, you're getting yourself worked up over things which aren't as important. You're, you're running really fast. You're doing lots of stuff. In fact, the, the word that Jesus uses here to describe Martha's state of being is that she is distracted, that she's overwhelmed, that she's harassed, that she's over-occupied, that she's dragging around a whole lot of expectations. Ever felt like that? In fact, this word that Jesus uses here is also the word that 
is used diaconia, the word for ministry in the New Testament. And you know what? That says that there's an even pure ministry, even serving God, even doing something for him can become a weight that we drag around, something that becomes just um, something that we just have to get done, something we just have to tick off, something we just have to say that we've, we've done that as well rather than serving Jesus joyfully. But Jesus says to Martha, you're missing out on what's important. And he tells him, Mary has chosen what is better. Mary has chosen the better part. You can imagine Martha kind of echoing incredulously, you know, and, and we also do this in our own world of activity, don't we? You mean there's more that I have to do? There's something that's missing in my I have to add something else in? How can I do that? You know what? It's not more necessarily that's required of us. In fact, it just might be less. John Ortberg says in his book, It All Goes Back in the Box, that there are two illusions or two myths that are very prominent in our lives and which lie behind this hurry sickness that we experience. And the first thing is when things settle down. Have you ever said that? You know, I'll, I'll get around to what matters one day when things settle down. If you're a mum, you know, I'll get around to what matters one day when my baby starts sleeping through the night or when all the kids are finally at school or when my kids have finished uni and starting, uh, started working and living in their own home, when things settle down or when I've finished my study, when I've got the house just the way that I like it, when I've achieved my next promotion. You know, uh, we can even be really... Uh, running so fast that we are wishing ourselves into the next season of our lives and missing out on the good stuff that's happening right now. Now, how quickly we want to hurry through today to get to tomorrow. Let me read you one mother's reflection on this. First, I was dying to finish high school and start uni. And then I was dying to finish uni and start working. And then I was dying to marry and have children and then I was dying for my children to grow old enough for school so I could go back to work. And then I was dying to retire. And now I am dying. And suddenly I realise that I forgot to live. You know, hurry is one of the greatest enemies of spiritual life. Because you can hardly do anything the way that Jesus did it. In a hurry, can you? Um, there's a distinction between being busy and being in a hurry, though, I think. Busy is an external condition, a condition of the body. And Jesus was often busy. He had many things to do. He was teaching and healing and talking and praying and travelling around. But he was, he was never hurried. Hurried is an inward condition, a condition of the soul in which I'm so frantic and so preoccupied that I'm unable to receive love from the Father and I'm also unable to give love to others. Remember that first illusion I said, things, when things settle down, is it true? Will, will things ever settle down? I don't think so. I don't think we'll ever get to a point where we can say, well, things have settled down now. And if we wait until things settle down to do what really matters in life, then I don't think we'll become the kind of people God wants us to become. I don't think we'll accomplish the things that God has for us to do. I don't think we'll experience the fullness of life that he has for us. Hurry is one of the greatest enemies of spiritual life 
and we need to ruthlessly eliminate it from our lives. No one else is going to do it for us. It's something we need to take responsibility for. We can't listen to a child in a hurry. I, I try it. I, after a busy day at work, picking up the kids from school and, and Georgia has this habit of saying, I've got two things I want to tell you today about school, Mum. One, two. And I'm, I'm, my mind is distracted and I'm driving home thinking about where I've got to go to next. And I'm going, uh-huh, tell me. She said, no, yeah, you, I'm asking you, do you want to hear number one or do you want to hear number two? And, I, and I'm telling her, look, I'm listening. I'm just not concentrating. I'm not listening when I'm in a hurry. We can't develop friendships in a hurry. We can't affirm and encourage each other genuinely when we're in a hurry. We can't resolve a conflict in a hurry. We can't build a relationship with God in a hurry. We can't grow the fruit of the Spirit in a hurry. You know, one way to to kind of try to cure this hurry sickness thing, if you like, is by training ourselves in certain practices. And one of those, I think, is slowing down. Uh, That involves cultivating patience by deliberately choosing to place ourselves in positions where we simply have to wait. Why don't you, over the next month, deliberately drive five kilometres below the speed limit? How easy would that be? Not real easy, I don't think. (laughs) What about for a week? Why don't you try and eat your food more slowly, do what the doctors tell us to do and chew... 15 or more times per mouthful and try and be the last person to finish at your dinner table. Why don't you, when you're at the supermarket store, look carefully to see which checkout line is the longest and stand in that line and then even let someone in front of you. Have a look at the smile on their face, by the way, when you do do that. You will make their day. (laughs) Why don't you go through a day without wearing your watch? You might start slowing down. You probably annoy a whole lot of other people as well. But, you know, the list could go on. Um, We get the idea. We have to find ways to deliberately choose waiting, ways that make hurry impossible. And then as we're practising them, I guess part of that is telling God, I'm trusting that you will enable me to accomplish what it is that you have for me today, what you require that I get done, not necessarily what I think needs to be done. And we can discover that we can actually survive without hurry. You might even find that you enjoy it. And if we practice these ways diligently enough, we can become unhurried people. There's another illusion that uh, John Ortberg talks about and he says, and this is part of why it is that things will not settle down in life. And it's It got to do with this second illusion or myth that can be prominent in our lives and be underlying this uh, hurry sickness, this sense that we have that we need to rush to achieve more and more. And it's because we believe this illusion that someday more will be enough. uh, Someday when I've done more, accomplished more, earned more, acquired more, succeeded more, more will one day be enough, won't it? Will I be satisfied then? Then I will slow down. Mark chapter 8 verse 36 says, What good is it for a person to gain the whole world yet forfeit his or her soul? Another version reads, What good would it do to get everything you want and lose you, the real you? What could you ever trade your soul for? Let me give you a, a 
practical example here, and um, maybe this one's a bit more of a girl thing. Um, but and for those of you perhaps a bit more spiritual than I am, you don't experience this kind of struggle. But you know, at the start of a season, I might have a look in my wardrobe and think, okay, um, how am I going in terms of what I need here this season? And I think, oh, look, I'm pretty right. I think perhaps it's just um, probably need a new pair of shoes because those ones wore out for last year, a bit smelly. So, yeah, I think probably I could get by with a, one new pair of shoes this winter, this season. And I tick off this mental check, checklist and, um, and I think, yep, that's it, until I kind of perhaps have a look around, um, have a look at the junk mail catalogue, um, allow myself to listen to um, all of those messages that are bombarding us every day uh, from every direction that says that, no, uh, what you have is not enough, that what you need is more. And if you have more, then you'll be satisfied. And, I, you know, there's this temptation to think, well, maybe I do need that new jacket that I just caught a glimpse of in that catalogue that I saw on, on TV. Um, you know, it can be prominent with house stuff as well, can't it? Um, you know, you finally saved up for that uh, new couch after the second-hand one or the hand-me-down one that you've been living with. And then you get that new couch and then suddenly you go, oh, those, uh, that lamp on the table or that, that rug is looking a bit old now with that new couch. And, yeah, maybe we just need to get a new lamp or a new rug. Or, yeah, no, when, when I put that picture on the wall, now it makes me look at the, the paint and we really do need a new coat of paint. And then... Um, and as for those window furnishings, now that we've got the new coat of paint, you know, and we think maybe just one more thing and, and then I'll be happy and then I'll be satisfied. Maybe it's a technology thing for, for you. You know, you get the latest gadget and you're satisfied with that until it gets superseded or gets updated and suddenly what you have, which was just fabulous, suddenly doesn't feel enough and only the latest, only more can be enough. You know, there's not necessarily anything wrong with buying any of those things, doing stuff to your house, getting a new jacket, obviously, but, you know, there is something wrong with the thinking that says someday more will be enough. Someday more will bring contentment. Someday more will make me more happy. And there's that illusion, someday more will be enough. You know what? More will never be enough. We know that and we've experienced that. Because when we get that thing, it doesn't feel enough. We're thinking about the next thing. And, you know, if we think that we just keep getting more, well, we do, and we think that it will lead to contentment and we kill ourselves for more, more choices, more prominence, more stuff, more holidays, more kids, more hours at work, more gigabytes on my computer, more functions on my PDA. More is going to bring contentment, we think, and yet I wonder if you've ever considered a different perspective on contentment. The Apostle Paul, he's sitting in a jail cell and he's writing that he has learned the secret of being content in any and every situation when he lives with God and acknowledges God's presence and care for him. It's a learned contentment which is dependent on the perspective that we bring to life. You know what the secret of Paul's contentment was? It was his understanding that more will never be enough. But that Jesus is enough.
know, Snoopy at one time, he was sitting on top of his dog kennel and it's Thanksgiving in America, of course, and he's a bit bitter because Charlie Brown and the family are having this huge feast inside their house. But Snoopy is stuck on his dog kennel with only a bowl of dog food. And he's grumbling about that until this thought occurs to him. And he says to himself, it could be worse. I could have been born a turkey. <laughs> you know, we can laugh at that, but it would be good for us to remember that little phrase, wouldn't it? It could be worse. Okay, you're ready for a few exercises here. You know, when we leave the church building today, all right, we're going to go out into the car park and we're going to get into whatever car it was that we drove here in and we might be tempted to think, if I just had a newer car, nicer car, bigger car, a car where the heating worked, a non-rattling car, a car which hasn't been reversed into by your spouse, <laughs> then I'd be content. But we're not going to think like that. True. Um, instead, today we're going to open the door of our car. We're going to say to ourselves with great compassion, I'm allowed to do that, it's Mother's Day, honey. <laughs> An enormous conviction, it could be worse. Because it could be, and it is, for most people. And when you drive in that car to where you live, your house, a unit, a parent's house, whatever, we can be tempted to think when we walk inside that door, if I just had a newer house, nicer house, bigger house my own house, a paid-off house, then I'd be content. But not today. Let's, um, we're not going to think that, are we? Instead, today, when we get home, we're going to walk into that front door, we're going to stop, we're going to say to ourselves with great passion and conviction, it could be worse, because it could be, and it is for most people, the majority of people in our world. And tomorrow morning, when you wake up and you roll over and you look at your spouse, you're going to say, <laughs> no, don't do that. Maybe we should try. Things just couldn't get any better, honey. Um, I wonder if you've learned the secret, the secret of contentment in any and every situation when you're living with God. Do you hear Jesus calling your name and saying, come, come, Martha, come sit at my feet. Substitute your own name in there. You might be worried and bothered about many things, you might be running really fast and thinking one day things will settle down. Or perhaps deep down you might be thinking someday more of whatever will be enough and you're desperately discontent with the way that things are for you. You know, we have to hurry up and slow down enough to ask ourselves the questions, what really matters? What are the most important things for us to be giving ourselves to? What are the better things that Jesus says that Mary chose which will not be taken away from her? What is it that's worth giving our lives to? You know, we all know that how quickly the years are flying by, how quickly life passes. A, a woman named Mary Jean Arian wrote a, a little piece called Gift from a Hairdryer, Reflections of a Mum as She Combs Her Seven-Year-Old Daughter's Hair After a Bath. And it kind of captures what a, a precious thing life is. Comb and dry, comb and dry. Soon I won't be able to do this anymore, you say to yourself, knowing that the straight little bob must inevitably yield to grown-up styles. What will she be like at 14? Where will her hair be blowing then? At 16 and 18? Do you suppose boys will love to watch her hair blow as you do now? 
and some of them will feel it on their faces and one of them will marry her and her hair will be spread under the veil and then spread out on his pillow and oh, you dislike him a little and you wonder where he is at this moment, whether he'll be good to her. They will grow old together and the golden brown hair will become grey and you will be gone and then she will be gone, this very hair that now your fingers smooth. And all the tears of the world swim for a second in your eyes as you snatch the hairdryer plug out of the socket suddenly and gather her into your arms, burying your face in her warm hair as if you could seal this moment against all time. But of course we can't, can we? Because the moments come and the years fly and we can't stop them, we can't control them and the only thing that we can control is how we're choosing to live our lives before God right now. What illusion or myth perhaps has a grip on you right now that things, things will never settle down in this world, more will never be enough and all that matters for eternity is how we've loved God and how we've loved others. That's all. Jesus says that in Mark chapter 12 where he talks about the greatest commandments, to love God and to love others. And you can't do these in a hurry. You need to hurry up and slow down. You know, Jesus said to Martha that only one thing is really needed and that Mary had chosen what was better and that it wouldn't be taken away from here. I wonder what that better thing was. You know, I think it's got to do with having the kind of heart that Mary had, an adoring heart, the kind of heart that responded to the extravagant love of Jesus and responded with her own kind of extravagant love. Mary dropped everything and she sat at Jesus' feet. We need to hurry up and slow down and, and do just that so that we can fix the gaze of our eyes and our hearts upon him and what he wants for us. Um, allow ourselves, again, to be captivated by the love of God and let all of the doing flow out of that place. Um, but there's a struggle within each of us, isn't there? Because part of us is like Mary and we want to love, we want to worship extravagantly, we want to sit at his feet um, we want to give ourselves to what's most important but then part of us is like Martha and there's just so much to do and so many legitimate needs that are compelling us to work and to hurry about doing that and then we hear God's call to us to come away and we want to respond, yes Lord I will come, I will slow down but then the phone rings or we're reminded of something that we've forgotten to do and then suddenly all of our good intentions disappear and they're swallowed up in the tyranny of the urgent. Does that sound familiar? I know it does to me. How can we do it? How can we find the time to follow Mary to the feet of Jesus? How can we cultivate the kind of heart that she had? I mean, I want that. And um, I know we talked before about just the, the discipline of training ourselves to slow down and to do that during the day. But I think we also need to hurry up and slow down at a particular and a specific time in each day as well. Choosing a, a time when it suits you is pretty crucial, but that's going to take a fight. It takes a fight to do that, but, but we can do it. More than just slowing down too, it means solitude. We need solitude. Jesus engaged in solitude frequently and he taught his followers to do the same. He said, come away to a deserted place. He took them with him and he says that to us too. What makes solitude 
so important. I think solitude is the one place where we gain freedom from the forces of society that will otherwise relentlessly mould us. The messages come at us with a, a continual stream, don't they? Act now, don't delay. You can earn it if you run a little faster, work a little longer. It's okay to be frantic and stressed and empty and exhausted because that's the way everybody is. So don't worry about it. You know, the truth is, as much as we complain about it, we're actually drawn to hurry, aren't we? Because it, it, it kind of makes us feel important. You know, I'm, I'm, when people ask me how my week's been or how I'm going, um, sometimes my, the first thing that I want to say is, I've just been so busy. I'm actually trying to stop saying that because I think my busyness is my choice and my problem most of the time. And also there's this tendency for me to gauge a sense of my own importance by talking about what I am doing compared with who I am being. So if you catch me saying, I'm, I've, I've just been so busy, you stop me, okay? And maybe have a think about that um, yourselves. I think solitude is the answer to this kind of busyness. Solitude is withdrawing from conversation, from the presence of others, from noise, from the constant barrage of stimulation. It means coming just as we are without all of the stuff that we use to prop ourselves up, to convince ourselves that we're important or we're okay and coming with a desire to be with God. We need those kind of times of solitude on a regular basis, preferably each day, perhaps even more times in a day. It might mean letting a call go to an answering machine. It might put, mean putting your mobile phone on silent. It might mean resisting checking your emails for the tenth time that day. It might mean arranging a child-free morning occasionally with someone else that you can share that time with and offer to do that for them. It might mean uh, going for a walk on your own without someone like you normally do if, if you do that and not wearing your iPod or your um, radio or whatever. Grabbing some solitude in that way. Grabbing 10 minutes while you're doing the ironing or while you're in the garden, garden while you're mowing the lawn. Might mean getting up 10 minutes earlier than you normally do or staying up 10 minutes after everyone else has gone to sleep. Whatever, just do it. Let's hurry up and let's slow down and find solitude so that we can cultivate the kind of heart that Mary had. And maybe you feel like you're ready to try spending some extended time in solitude and um, perhaps a half day or even more. I've got a handout that's at the welcome desk on your way out that you're free to grab which can um, provide some ideas for a bit of a plan for that kind of day. If you like that kind of thing, it can feel a bit intimidating trying to say, okay, I'm going to have a day of solitude and go, what do I do? If that's something that you're interested in, you feel free to, to take one of those when you leave today. Um, you know what, there may be some of you here today too who uh, you need to hurry up and slow down enough to start thinking about some of these things we've been talking about today. We can run so fast sometimes so that we don't have to look too closely at our own lives, at our own hearts and what's going on inside and sometimes we actually need to choose to slow down so we can allow God to, to speak to us and deal with some of those things in our lives. Perhaps the emptiness, perhaps the lack of joy, perhaps the guilt, perhaps the lack of a sense of purpose that you feel in your life. And maybe you want to grab someone today who's a, a friend that you can chat to about that. Um, 
or one of our pastoral team or leaders after the service and have a little chat about that. You know, Nicholas Herman was born in the Lorraine region of France in the middle of the 17th century. He was largely uneducated. He worked briefly as a footman, then a soldier. At the age of 18, Nicholas experienced a spiritual awakening and from that moment on, his life had one goal, to walk as in God's presence. In 1666, Nicholas joined a Carmelite monastery in Paris. There he served as a lay brother until he died at 80 years of age, full of love and years and honoured by all who knew him. Perhaps you'd recognise Nicholas by his Carmelite name, Brother Lawrence. A group of letters he wrote during his lifetime was collected into a book called The Practice of the Presence of God. Though Brother Lawrence never meant his correspondence to be published, um, this book has sold millions, challenging centuries of Christians to a closer walk with God. It's a picture of a life devoted to God, a truly fruitful life, a picture of a merry heart, if you like, in a Martha world. He didn't learn the secret of fruitfulness sitting high upon a pole like Simeon the Stylite. He didn't learn it in a cave or in a desert or in the silent halls of the monastery. He learned it in a kitchen. A kitchen. When Brother Lawrence joined the monastery, he had fully expected to spend his days in prayer and meditation. Instead, he was assigned to cooking and clean up, a position for which he admitted a great aversion. Yet, once Brother Lawrence decided to do everything there for the love of God and with prayer and for his grace to do his work well, he found his own Martha world, his own kitchen service, a joy and an avenue to a closer walk with God. This is what he wrote. The time of busyness does not with me differ from the time of prayer. And in the noise and the clatter of my kitchen, while several persons are at the same time calling for different things, I possess God in as great tranquility as if I were upon my knees at the blessed sacrament. He knew the distinction between being busy and being in a hurry. He had decided to hurry up and slow down. It was an internal thing. And you might not feel like you're able at the moment to draw aside for much solitude, but in the midst of the clatter, in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of a Martha world, we can have a merry heart. I want that, don't you? So let's hurry up and slow down enough so that we can cultivate the kind of heart that Brother Lawrence had, that Mary had. So the moments of our lives, no matter how mundane, no matter how busy, can become a flame with the divine. Amen. And God, in these moments, we want to be open and listening to your voice, the voice of Jesus saying, come and sit at my feet. And God, in these moments, we just want to acknowledge 
that there's no truth that things will one day settle down. That more things will never be enough. And God, we just want to receive your love and love others. This morning in these moments of stillness and quietness, God, we pray that you'd help us to pull aside and to be still. Let's just do that for a few moments, shall we? Let's just be still now before God. God, we pray that in the coming days, in the coming weeks, that we would find often times to pull aside and that the solitude and the time we spend receiving your love will help us in giving it to others and will help us in the ordinary things of life to know the joy of doing them with a sense of you with us and for your glory. And God, in our business, may we know you with us right through it and save us from hurriedness. This is our prayer, God. And now as we come to, to give of our gifts, our tithes and offerings, we thank you for all that you have given us. And God, we thank you that you have given us enough and as we give it to you, we thank you for everything that we have with joyful hearts. We worship you in Jesus' name. Amen. In these